Well, we were over in Joshua chapter 5 tonight as we look at the battle of Jericho. In verse 1, So it was when all the kings of the Amorites who were on the west side of the Jordan and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until we had crossed over, that their heart melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of, because of, the children of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives for yourselves and circumcise the sons of Israel again the second time. There was a first time before this, but uh, this is the second time. We're going to get more into this in just a minute. But they're, they're, they always use the flint knives. Apparently they say that the healing process was a little quicker than if they used the steel one. So Joshua made flint knives for himself and circumcised the sons of Israel at the hill of the foreskins. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt were, who were males, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. For all the people who came out had been circumcised. It was the first time. When they came out, they made sure that everyone was circumcised. But all the people born in the wilderness on the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness till all the people who were men of war who came out of Egypt were consumed because they did not obey the voice of the Lord to whom the Lord swore that He would not show, show them the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers that He would give us a land flowing with milk and honey. Then Joshua circumcised their sons whom he had raised up in their place for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. So it was when they had finished circumcising all the people that they stayed in their places in the camp till they were healed then the Lord said to Joshua, This day I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Therefore the name of the place is called Gilgal to this day. Again, we're still with the place here of Gilgal. Now this is after they crossed over into the promised land. God commands that the men be circumcised. Do you remember that Levi uh, had, didn't like some of the treatment that one of his sisters had gotten? And so he and his brother, they went over there and they, they had the men who were responsible for in the city, anyway, who were associated with it, they had them all become circumcised, and while they were still in pain, they went and threw and slaughtered them all. They couldn't defend themselves. So here God has these folks come into the land, cross over the Jordan in the presence of Jericho, and then says, all right, now you're going to be circumcised. <laughs> I mean, I think on the other side of the wilderness would have been better. Anybody else think that? That certainly would have been a whole lot better. But, you know, you just don't ask questions of God. If God says this is the time, then, well, doggone, this is the time. But you do want to ask the question, why now? Why is it important that we do it now? Why is it that we waited until we got through the Jericho? Why is it that we weren't doing this during, during the wilderness? Why were they not done uh, on the eighth day like they were commanded to do? Well, circumcision represents the covenant of God. In Genesis chapter 17, verse 10, This is my covenant with which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. The circumcision of Israel was a sign of the covenant between them and God. That this was the outward sign. This is the covenant that is going on there. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 48, And when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord... Let all the males be circumcised and let him come near and keep it. And he shall be as a native of the land for no uncircumcised person shall eat it. So the other thing is, as far as the Passover is concerned, which is a whole lot of what they're based on, as are we with the crucifixion of Messiah, you're not going to, no one, not a stranger among you can 
partake of this Passover unless he is circumcised. Circumcision is a sign of the covenant. You, you take on the circumcision to show that you are part of the covenant. Which means this, that from the time of the second generation or the first generation's rejection until the crossing of the Jordan, the covenant was not represented. That God basically put His covenant on hold with that faceless generation. He still supplied them. He still met their needs. He still protected them. But He did not require them to have the sign of the covenant. Now we're crossing over. Now we're going to start over with a new group. And for this one, we need the sign of the covenant. And God doesn't even care that the enemy is just still on the other side. But He waits until they get out of the wilderness, which had been a place of wandering, which is a place for the first generation to die off. The generation that was rejected or that rejected God. And he brings them into the new land. And now he says, all right, now we're going to redo the covenant. We're going to do the Passover. We're going to do the whole thing. Right here in the presence of Jericho. And Jericho was in such fear because of what they heard before and what they just now saw with the Jordan River that they didn't even come out and find out what was going on. (laughs) They stayed inside. I put in your outline this. It is more important that you stand before the Lord than to stand before your enemies. God was more concerned that they would stand before Him than they could stand before their enemies. So He said, go ahead and be circumcised now. All the men. That's all the men of war. They didn't have men and women serving them. The men were the warriors. The women were not. So the entire army is down. Except for two. There are two guys that carried over from the other generation. And then He says this, that the reproach of Egypt is taken away. The reproach of Egypt is not taken away by the circumcision. If that was the case, then when they were circumcised before, that would have taken away the reproach of Egypt. The reproach of Egypt was something else. And he said this day, so it has to have something to do with the crossing over of the Jordan, which would seem to flash back to the fact that they didn't cross over before because they had brought all that stuff with Egypt. They wanted to go back to Egypt, all this sort of thing. And so since they came out for 40 years, they've been wandering around this wilderness with no place to go. And people are saying, I thought God brought them out for something. He's just having them wander around. And that was probably a reproach on them. And he said, this day I've taken that off of you because now i brought you over. Now they're in here. Verse 10. Now the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. Well, we had to get the Passover out of the way before we could do the, the, or the, the circumcision out of the way before we could do the Passover. And they ate of the produce of the land on the day after the Passover, unleavened bread and parched grain on the very same day. Then the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten the produce of the land. And the children of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate the food of the land of the Canaan that, that year. So we said, as we said before, when they got over here into the, into the promised land, the manna ceased. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked. And behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us? or for our adversaries. So he said, No, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. Now you don't hear this phrase used too often, and nor do you see anyone except worship except for one. Jesus, the angel of the Lord. Here it's called the commander of the Lord's army. So I want you to get an idea of how uh, empowered Joshua is. Most people, when they see Jesus standing, cower. 
Most people who see Jesus when they stand there, they are afraid. They fall on their knees and worship right away. He does not because the promise to him was no man shall be able to stand before you. So he sees this person probably with an overwhelming presence with a sword drawn and Joshua goes after him and says, are you for us or against us? If you're against us, I'm coming after you right now. I don't care that you look big. I don't care that you look empowered. I don't care that you look impressive. No one can stand before me. If you're not for us, you're going to die. <laughs> That's what he's saying. This guy, he's got his sword drawn. He is ready. And he, it is an incredible presence that the Lord Jesus carries over people when he shows up. If you go through them, look at the times that he has shown up as the angel of the Lord or at other times. It's, it's, it's not something that people mistake. Oh, who is this guy? <laughs> and Joshua comes after him. I'm going to kill you if you're not for us. Are you for us or against us? And he says, no, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. <laughs> and that's all he needs to hear. And he's down on his knees to worship him. <laughs> oh, man. But can you see how Joshua took the words that the Lord spoke to him? No man shall be able to stand before you. Literally. And it empowered him. And it strengthened him. And he came after him. The 14th day of the month, in which they're going to celebrate this Passover, is four days after the crossing of the Red Sea. Not many days after the circumcision. Verse um, 1 of chapter 6. We, we did we read all the other one, right? Thought we had. All right. Now Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out and none came in. Now none means none, nobody. Which is why no one found out about them being circumcised. And maybe they would have come on down and done something about it because they there was none. <laughs> no one came out. No one went in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand. It's king and the mighty men of valor. I want to ask you this. What's he supposed to see? Look what he says. See, I have given Jericho into your hand. It's king and the mighty men of valor. What is he supposed to see that shows him? Because all he sees is a city with a wall around it. <laughs> and the people inside the wall, which is where they're supposed to be when they're under attack. What's he supposed to see? The same thing that we're supposed to see. We are supposed to see into the promise. We are supposed to see into, the, into what God has said. Not the walls and the city and the closed gates and all that. He says, see, I have given Jericho into your hand. It's king and the mighty men of valor. He can't even see them right now because they're inside the city. You shall march around the city, all your, you men of war. You shall go around the city once. This you shall do six days. As we said, it's not that big of an area. It won't take that long, but it, does, it is a lot of people to get coordinated because all of them have to walk around it. And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times and the priests shall blow the trumpet. And it shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horn and when you hear the sound of the trumpet then all the people shall shout with a great shout then the wall of the city will fall down flat and the people shall go up every man straight before him. Then Joshua, Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them take up the ark of the covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people proceed and march around the city and let him who is armed advance 
before the ark of the Lord. So it was when Joshua had spoken to the people that the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord advanced and blew the trumpets and the ark of the covenant of the Lord followed them. The armed men went before the priest who blew the trumpets and the rear guard came after the ark while the priest continued blowing the trumpets. Now Joshua had commanded the people saying, You shall not shout or make any noise with your voice nor shall a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I say to you, Shout, then you shall shout. So he had the ark of the Lord circle the city going around at once and they came into the camp and lodged in the camp. So we see the number seven going on quite a bit. Seven priests, seven horns, seven times on the, on the seventh day. One time on the other days, they're supposed to make this advancement and, and head on around. So as we said in your outline there, it's see what? What are they supposed to see? They got the marching orders here, but what is he supposed to see? He's supposed to see more than what he sees with his natural eye. Too often we get caught up with what we see with our natural eye and we don't take any Jerichos. Verse 12, Then Joshua rose early in the morning and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. Then seven priests bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord went on continually and blew with the trumpets. And the armed men went before them, but the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. And the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. So they did six days. But it came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early about the dawning of the day and marched around the city seven times in the same manner. On that day only they marched around the city seven times. And the seventh time it happened that the priests blew the trumpets that Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Now the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction, it and all who are in it. Only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all who are with her in a house, because she hid the messengers that were sent. And you, by all means, abstain from the accursed things, lest you become accursed when you take the accursed things and make the camp of Israel accursed and trouble it. We'll get more into that, of course, next week or next time when we uh, look at Achan. But all the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord and they shall come into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted when the priests blew the trumpets. And it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, and the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat and the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city. And they utterly destroyed all that were in the city, both men or man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and donkey and the edge of the sword. But Joshua had said to the two men who had spied out the country, go into the harlot's house and from there bring out the woman and all that she has as you swore to her. And the young men who had been spies went in, brought out Rahab, her father, her mother, her brothers, and all that she had. So they brought out all her relatives and left them outside the camp of Israel. But they burned the city and all that was in it with fire, only the silver, gold, and vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. And Joshua spared Rahab the harlot, her father's household, and all that she had. So she dwells in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Now, what's important to note here is the description of the city and what all happened, that the walls fell, that they came on in, that they pulled out the silver, the gold, and the bronze, and everything else, what happened to it? They burned it. They left everything else in the city, and they burned the city with fire. Now, there's a lot of, the, uh, a lot of things being said about Jericho. A lot of uh, archaeological finds have been made. Some things seem to counteract the biblical account. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of any of these. But I have one account that kind of summarizes a bunch of them. I want to read this to you. 
The name Jericho brings to mind Israelites marching, trumpets sounding, and walls falling down. It is a wonderful story of faith and victory, but did it really happen? The skeptic would say no, it is merely a folktale to explain the ruins of Jericho. The main reason for this negative outlook is the excavations at the site carried out in the 1950s in the direction of British archaeologist Kathleen Kenyon. She concluded, this is her conclusion here, it is a sad fact that of the town walls of the late Bronze Age, within which period the attack by the Israelites must fall by any dating, not a trace remains. The excavation of Jericho, therefore, has thrown no light on the walls of Jericho of which the destruction is so vividly described in the book of Joshua. I should read, uh, I wasn't going to read this part, of this, but I think we need this part of it, I'm sorry. Uh, Thomas A. Holland, who was editor and co-author of Kenyon's excavation report, summarized the apparent results as follows. Kenyon concluded with reference to the military conquest theory that the late Bronze Age walls, that there was no archaeological data to support the thesis that the town had been surrounded by a wall at the end of uh, late Bronze Age 1, uh, 1400 B.C. However, a careful examination of the archaeological evidence collected through the century leads to quite another conclusion. Before the Israelites entered the Promised Land, Moses told them that they were now about to cross the Jordan River to dispose, dispose dispossessed nations which were greater and stronger than themselves with large cities having walls that reached as it were to the sky in Deuteronomy chapter 9 verse 1. The meticulous work of Kenyon showed that Jericho was indeed heavily fortified and that it had been burned by fire. Unfortunately, she misstated her findings resulting in what seemed to be a discrepancy between the discoveries of archaeology and the Bible. She concluded that the Bronze Age city of Jericho was destroyed about 1550 B.C. by the Egyptians. An in-depth analysis of the evidence, however, re reveals that the destruction took place around 1400 B.C., the end of the late Bronze Age, period 1, exactly when the Bible says the conquest occurred. Schematics, cross-section diagrams of the fortification system of Jericho based on Kenyon's West Trench, the mound or tail of Jericho, was surrounded by a great earthen rampart or embankment with a stone retaining wall at its base. The retaining wall was some 4 to 5 meters, 12 to 15 feet high. On top of that was a mud brick wall, 2 meters, 6 feet thick, and about 6 to 8 meters, 20 to 26 feet high. At the crest of the embankment was a similar mud brick wall whose base was roughly 14 meters above the ground level outside the retaining wall. Now, there's a diagram inside here, and... There's a printed picture of it over here, but I have it blown up for you so that you can see a little bit better here. That's the type of a wall that they are talking about, that they found at the site. If you can see the retaining wall down here, the secondary wall being built up here, the mound continues to go up, and another wall up over in this way. In, in this area right here were houses. In the areas between the two walls were houses. Rahab's house was along this wall, the outer wall. That would have been where her house was. And when she let the men down through the wall, they went down through the, the uh, wall on top of the mound and also the retaining wall. She let them down by rope. So they would have gone down that way. That's how the excavation shows. But it's quite a bit to, to go up because you have to 
not only scale this, but then you're going working on the uphill, up the embankment, and then up to this hill here. You're very vulnerable throughout all that time. So it was a pretty, pretty formidable defense. This is what loomed high above the Israelites as they marched around the city each day. So each day for six days, this is what they got a close-up look of. Humanly speaking, it was impossible for the Israelites to penetrate the impregnable bastion of, of Jericho. The citizens of Jericho were well prepared for a siege. A copious spring which provided water for ancient as well as modern Jericho lay inside the city walls. At the time of the attack, the harvest had just been taken in. So the Israelites had an abundant supply of food. Remember, they can date this because of the the, the uh, flood stage of the Jericho River. So they knew when, when that it was. So they had just taken in all the harvest and stored that inside the city. They had all that to eat. So the citizens had, a, had an enormous supply of food. This has been borne out by many large jars full of grain found in the Canaanites' home by John Garstang in his excavation in the 1930s. And also by Kenyon, with a plentiful food supply and ample water, the inhabitants of Jericho could have held out for perhaps several years. After the seventh trip around the city and the seventh day, Scripture tells us that the wall fell down flat. The Hebrew here carries the suggestion that it fell beneath itself. There is evidence for such an event, as a, or is there evidence for such an event at Jericho? It turns out that there is ample evidence that the mud brick city wall collapsed and was deposited at the base of the stone retaining wall at the time the city met its end. So you remember that stone wall that they built, the retaining wall, the stone wall would have fallen in such a way to fall in front of the retaining wall by the uh, excavations that they've made. Kenya's work was the most detailed. On the west side of the, of the tell, which is the uh, mound of the city, at the base of the retaining or revetment wall, she found fallen red bricks piling near, nearly to the top of the revetment. These probably came from the wall on the summit of the bank and or the brick wall above the revetment. So that brick wall that they made would have fallen down and been in front of the retaining wall. The reason that that's important was it gave them something to walk up. In other words, she found a heap of bricks from the fallen city walls. An Italian team excavating at the south southern end of the mound in 1997 found exactly the same thing. An artist's reconstruction of the north side of the ancient Jericho based on the German excavations of 1907 through 1909. And I'll, I guess I can pull that up for you too. This is the, this is the artist as the artist drew this, this is what he came up with to show what their excavation showed of the, of the city. You can see the, the buildings are kind of put in there. You can see how the bricks were falling in, in front of, and that gave them the, something to climb up. According to the Bible, Rahab's house was incorporated into the fortification system. If the walls fell, how was her house, house spared? As you recall, the spies had instructed Rahab to bring her family into the house and they would be rescued. When the Israelites stormed the city, Rahab and her family were saved as promised. At the north end of the tell of Jericho, archaeologists made some astounding discoveries that seemed to relate to Rahab. The German excavation of 1907 to 1909 found that on the north, a short stretch of the lower city wall, that's the first wall that you encounter, the lower city wall did not fall as everywhere else. A portion of the mud brick wall was still standing to a height of over two meters, eight feet. 
What is more, there were houses built against the wall. It is quite possible that this is where Rahab's house was. Since the city wall formed the back wall of the houses, the spies could have easily escaped from this location on the north side of the city. It was only a short distance to the hills of the Judean wilderness, where the spies hid for three days. Real estate values must have been low here since the houses were positioned on the embankment between the upper and lower city walls. Not the best place to live in time of war. This area was no doubt the overflow from the upper city and a poor part of town, perhaps even a slum district. After the city walls fell, how did the Israelites surmount the four to five meters high retaining wall at the base of the tell? Excavations have shown that the bricks from the collapsed walls formed a ramp against the retaining wall so the Israelites could merely climb up over the top. The Bible is very precise in its description of how the Israelites entered the city. The people went up into the city, every man straight before him, i.e. straight up and over. The Israelites had to go up, and this is what archaeology has revealed. They had to go from ground level at the base of the tell to the top of the rampart in order to enter the city. The Israelites burned the city and everything in it. Once again, the discoveries of archaeology have verified the truth of this record. A portion of the city destroyed by the Israelites was excavated on the east side of the tell. Wherever the archaeologists reached this level, they found a layer of burned ash and debris about one meter, three feet thick. Kenyon described the massive devastation as follows. The destruction was complete. Walls and floors were blackened or reddened by fire, and every room was filled with fallen bricks, timbers, and household utensils. In most rooms, the fallen debris was, was heavily burnt, but the collapse of the walls of the eastern room seems to have taken place before they were affected by the fire. Both Garstang and Kenyon found many storage jars full of grain that had been caught in the fiery destruction. This is a unique find in the annals of archaeology. Grain was valuable, not only as a source of food, but also as a commodity which could be bartered. Under normal circumstances, valuables such as grain would have been plundered by the conquerors. Why was the grain left at Jericho? The Bible provides the answer. Joshua commanded the Israelites that the city and all that is in it were to be dedicated to the Lord. The grain left at Jericho and found by the archaeologists in modern times gives graphic testimony to the obedience of the Israelites nearly three and a half millennia ago. Only Achan disobeyed, leading to the debacle of Ai described in Joshua 7. Such a large quantity of grain left untouched gives silent testimony to the truth of yet another aspect of the biblical account. A heavily fortified city with an abundant supply of food and water would normally take many months, even years, to subdue. The Bible says that Jericho fell after only seven days. The jars found in the ruins of Jericho were full, showing that the siege was short since the people inside the walls consumed very little of the grain. Now the article goes on for the... I didn't read quite all of it. I read for you most of it. I did have a copy of it up over here if you all want to go and find it. I did find the same things confirmed in, in about two other locations as well. And if you keep on looking, you'll probably find some more. So it seems that the archaeological evidence concurs with what the Bible tells us about what happened at Jericho. Get on back over here and finish up our our verses here. We left off at verse 25. Then Joshua charged them at that time, saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord who raises up and builds the city, Jericho. He shall lay its foundation with his firstborn, and with his youngest he shall set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout all the country. Well, I guess they would, once they hear about 
The Jordan splitting and all the people coming through. And I bet you even word got around that they came in right in front of Jericho and they circumcised all the men. Because just word like that kind of stuff seems to spread back in those, those times. But they found out about what they did to Jericho. And even though by our accounts Jericho is not a huge city, it was a, a powerful thing to them that it had, had fallen in this way. But there's a curse that is pronounced on anyone who rebuilds it. Now, the Bible does not say it would not be rebuilt. There are some places that it says this city will not be rebuilt. But the Bible does not say it will not be rebuilt. It says whoever rebuilds it, this is the curse that will come upon you. We have one account of that in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 34. In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid his foundation with Ibiram, his firstborn, and with his youngest son, Sigub, he set up its gates according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through Joshua, the son of Nun. Nowhere does the word of God say that, that Jericho would not be inhabited. He just says, if you rebuild it as a city, you will lay its foundation with your firstborn and set up its gates with your, uh, with your youngest. And that's what this king did. Now, it history, and I was trying to go through here and pull this out, but there's just no real consistent agreement on this, that it had been rebuilt at least one or two more times after that. And that the same curse was said to have applied, but they were real sketchy as to who was the one who built it. Some people thought this one, some people thought this one, and, and so forth. So this one, the Bible tells us, this is because this happened during the Bible period of time. It says this one did, Hiel of Bethel, he built Jericho, and it says that he lost his firstborn when he laid its foundations and his youngest when he built the gates. So they come to Jericho here and this is their first battle. They've been obedient to the Lord. They've done everything that the Lord has asked them to do. So much different than the generation before them. And so far, everything's going pretty smooth. I mean, you have a whole city that just kind of topples down and then you just get to rush up. Because you imagine if they had to go through a whole siege... It'd be a long time before they get get through all this. Joshua is about 80 years old when he takes on leading them into the promised land. He dies at around 110. He judges Israel for about 30 years. So he's imagine this. He's an 80-year-old guy who's leading the children of Israel around, walking around the city, leading them into battle. The one thing we learn to do here is that whatever God says to do, do it. Even if it's in the presence of our enemies. Now, it's really easy for us to look at this and just kind of keep our application of this to when God tells us to take a city. Then we'll go ahead and we'll march around it and we'll do stuff like that. But God has told us to operate certain ways. Hasn't God told us to deal with people in certain ways? Even people that are against us? And isn't it better that we do what God says <laughs> than we do it our own way? But there are times that we face Jerichos and we don't walk around it the way we're supposed to. We don't do what God says to do. We don't walk into the promised land and go through the circumcision, go through the Passover feast. We say, oh no, we're in here now. We need to, we need to attack. We, need, we come up with our own plan. It's really easy for us to come up with our own way of doing things, but it's not necessarily God's. We have to listen to what God says. And what does God say on these things? There are a lot of times that we... We want to go back on through. We want to say, well, is tithing really for today? Well, I don't know if I really want to. But 
That's not what God says to do. And that's not that's why we're not standing in front of our Jerichos. There are times when God says about forgiving people. And we decide, well, yeah, but I don't know about this situation. And so then we don't forgive people. We don't follow the instructions. We don't do what God says to do. We come up with our own way. The children of Israel are following these things to the letter. They're doing everything they need to do. One person messed this whole thing up. We'll see in the next chapter. But up till now, they've all been doing exactly what they said to do. Exactly how they were supposed to go through the Jordan, they went through the Jordan. Exactly what they were supposed to do with the memorial, they did with the memorial. Exactly what they did with the encampment, exactly what they were supposed to do with the circumcision, exactly what they were supposed to do with the Passover, exactly what they were supposed to do with the city of Jericho. And I want you to notice one thing that is missing from the Bible account. Did anyone inside of Jericho say anything to the Israelites? The Bible does not say so. But how many times have we seen things on Jericho and it always have that the people are harassing them, saying things to them and, and so forth? But this is a group of people who is in fear. If VeggieTales does that, do it on that. This is a group of people that are in fear of Israel. They are scared out of their wits. They don't know what they're doing walking around the city, but they didn't know how they came through the Jericho or how they came through the Jordan. And they've heard about what's going on. These folks are scared silly. No one gets in. No one goes out. I don't know that anyone from Jericho did or did not say anything. But I do know that they were scared. But how easy it is for Israel to pick up what's going on on the inside and be wrong. And how easy it is for them to pick up what's going on on the outside and be wrong. All we've got to do, folks, is listen to what God says. Don't look at what you see. When, Jer- when the angel says to Joshua, See? I have given it into your hands. See what? A lot of us will go around, see what? What are you talking about? See what? There's nothing to see here. It looks the same as it did before. But no, we have to see, see things differently. We may be looking at some situations and they may look exactly the same as it did last week. And God says, see? <laughs> see? We find that exact same thing with, with Elisha. When the army came on down and he tells the servant, Lord, open his eyes so he could see. Because he said, those that are with us are more than are with them. He could see. Whether or not his eyes were open like his servants were, where he could physically see it, he still could see it. Joshua couldn't see what was going on inside. He couldn't hear what the king was saying. He couldn't see the army. But what God says was, see, I've given it into your hands. We need to get to a place where we can look at an impregnable city like Jericho and say, see, it's mine. (laughs) Whatever it is that we face, see, it's mine. Father, we thank you for the example of Jericho. We thank you for the things that we learn through history of how you have come through. What is written in your word is exactly what happened. There's no reason for us to doubt it. We thank you for the help that you give us that when we face Jerichos in our life, when we face things we've been called to take, called to bring down, called to have an effect upon, that we can do as Joshua did and see exactly what we're supposed to see and not what's in front of us.
Help us to obey all Your commands as we live life just as thoroughly as Israel did here as they crossed the Jordan, as they camped by Jericho, as they prepared to go to war, as they walked around the city, as they did all the things that were asked of them, that they did each one exactly as God said. We want to follow their example. If we want to get their results, we've got to follow their example. We thank you for the help that you give us on that. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.